1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Sends the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Father God, we love your word because you first loved us, so help us to hear now these glorious truths through Paul by way of divine inspiration, Holy Spirit-breathed words, I pray would be Holy Spirit-empowered to be declared through me that you might save souls who merely profess faith and bless, edify, sanctify those who by grace possess faith. For we are possessed by you, owned. In Christ's name, amen. What has gone wrong with modern Christianity one author was asked, to which he replied, it has become thoughtless, superficial, and self-absorbed. I couldn't agree more. As a vast majority of churches construct their services to be user-friendly, in worship, shallow in preaching, and casual in their Christian commitment. Consequently, as they sow seeds of a self-indulgent atmosphere, they yield, that is, they produce, Superficial Christianity. As countless professing Christians anemically follow this thoughtless, superficial, self-absorbed approach. While few, by the very grace of God, are seeking in asking to be directed in a manner altogether different as outlined by Jeremiah the prophet long, long ago who was also dealing with a very self-absorbed people when he said in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest. 
for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ is most relevant, it is most engaged, and it is most engaging when it stands firm on those ancient paths given to us by our Lord Christ regarding his word, regarding his worship, and regarding fellowship within his church. As a believer sits under the word of God, week in and week out, he or she at times will be challenged, confronted, convicted, encouraged, and compelled to follow the Lord Jesus more closely. Jesus, the word of God incarnate who is seated on the throne. And while he is presently seated upon the throne, his disciples are on the road, walking by faith. And as we walk by faith, we are continually bombarded with the temptation to think and live like, like the world. For Israel, they were continually bombarded to think and live like the surrounding nations. We're tempted, and the goal of the enemy is to get us to become spiritually anemic and self-absorbed, not gospel-absorbed, self-absorbed. And from the outset of church history, the church has fallen prey to the lure of walking outside of God's prescribed ancient paths. The Corinthians were very hung up on themselves, self-absorbed. They would make great 21st century Americans, the church in Corinth. That is a culture which thrives on self-esteem and of making much about yourself. Such was Corinth. They were, the church that is, in Corinth, they were enamored with their own giftedness, with their own sense of knowledge, their own sense of wisdom, their own sense of self-importance, constantly trying to outdo one another to show off how spiritual they were in comparison to another. Dividing and identifying themselves with um, certain teachers, certain preachers saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, and then the super spiritual ones who say, I don't need a preacher, I'm of Christ. They were divided. And by way of reminder, beloved, chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, forms a complete unit. It's all about schismata, schisms, divisions within the church at Corinth. And although Paul will shift gears along the way. He remains locked into the themes that are addressed here in chapter 1. And I said a few weeks ago, 
It's very important for us not to lose the forest for the trees as we study this epistle. Because as we focus on the forest, the trees make much more sense. And those trees are divisions within that church based on several things. And one had to do with false views of preaching. Another, false views of preachers. Temperaments of defiance, temperaments of disunity driven by arrogance and superiority. One problem after another. Uh, there, there were matters of self-aggrandizement, you know, one-upmanship within the Corinthian church. So Paul labors, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Paul labors to remind them of their new and true identity. Their new and true identity in Christ that they are indeed a purchased people by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ. We saw that in verses two through nine. He begins there. Why? Why begin with one's identity in Christ? Because clarity about identity shapes behavior. It creates gratitude and a proper attitude. Gratitude, true gratitude, produces right attitudes within the church of Jesus Christ. Any Christian who lacks gratitude will inevitably carry a bad attitude. Because wherever you have a bitter root, there will be bitter fruit. Now, this passage teaches us the art of proper living before God. Now, the symmetry of the passage, beloved, is cross-centered. This is a cross-centered passage. That is, he, what he's after is for these people to be shaped by the cross and not their culture. To be shaped by the crucified, risen Lord. This, this, this chapter alone is saturated with gospel grace. Grace, unmerited favor. And friends, let me say this. If grace is big in the mind of a believer, we will think little of ourselves. If grace is not big in the mind of a believer, we will inevitably think much of ourselves. Fact. Now, we saw last time in verses 18 to 25, the cross of Jesus Christ declared is the wisdom and the power of God. That is the preaching of the cross, God's message to sinners, as well as his medium to reach those sinners, public preaching, is the wisdom and power of God. That, that message and that medium to an unbelieving world is utter foolishness, but those people, Paul says, are perishing. That's a foolish message. 
That's not power in their mind. The gospel message of good news. It's the wisdom and power of God. The message about Jesus, Yahweh's Messiah, the promised Christ, God's only Savior dying on a cross. It's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. That's the gospel. However, that is not all there is to the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross. The good news, friends, is all that God has done for us in Christ by way of the cross. The new birth, your justification, your sanctification, your adoption, your, un your union with God through Christ, your resurrection to come, and your glorification. All of that and more because Jesus was suspended between earth and heaven, comes to us by way of the cross. The power and the wisdom of God. On the cross where Jesus was bearing the wrath of God the Father against sin and sinners while providing us his very righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So the cross then, friends, is, is the eye of the needle, so to speak, through which all that God has done for us comes to us. Without the cross, you have nothing. No certainty, no hope, no future glory, no justification, no sanctification. You don't have union with God. You're lost without the cross of Jesus Christ. So from out of the cross shines all the beauty of what God has provided for us with regard to eternal life. All of his grace, all of his mercy, the absolute perfection of God's radiant, salvific love. Not common love, not general love, but salvific love. That message is the power of God. And notice verse 30. Christ is the wisdom of God personified. A loud echo from Proverbs 8. You can read it later if you like. The wisdom of God personified Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, who's talking about the power and wisdom of God, in Romans chapter 1. Romans is the book that Martin Luther referred to as the clearest gospel of all. And in the gospel of Romans, from the outset, chapter 1 and verse 16, look at what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for again, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now remember, the gospel is not only a message about God's power, it is God's power. The gospel is God's power, therefore any attempt to try and polish it up or make it less offensive is to edit God and thereby you nullify its power. So don't even try. The gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. Now, 
The gospel of Romans, let me talk about Romans just for a bit. Since Paul says there in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of it. The gospel of Romans has been summarized with one word, exchange, exchange. If you go on to read chapter 1 of the book of Romans, we read this, sinful fallen human beings have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They have exchanged the truth of the God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see that today? Bunch of earth worshipers creature worshipers, and they have exchanged natural relations for what is against nature, men with men and women with women. The result, communion with God was exchanged for condemnation by God, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 28. That is to say that the world is judicially blind, they are hardened by God, turned over to themselves, that is what's referred to as divine Abandonment. The wrath of abandonment where God just turns sinners over to themselves. Now, the greatest exchange of all comes in Romans chapter 3. Where unrighteousness and condemnation is exchanged for righteousness and justification through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, God righteously declares sinners free from all blame through the redemption he provided through Christ's blood propitiation for sins. That is, God's wrath is satisfied in the blood of Jesus Christ as he bore the weight of God's wrath on that Roman cross. Perfectly just and righteous in the sight of God are you, Corinthian church, by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the wisdom and power of God. This is your identity. And it's ours as well. Paul divides humanity into two categories, those who are being saved, those who are perishing. The gospel he is not ashamed of always has a twofold effect. The response of some is foolishness. The response by God's grace to others, it is the power and wisdom of God. And that we saw last time in verses 18 to 25. This is what he wants these boastful, self-indulgent people to remember. So here now in verses 26 to 31, we're shown another dimension, we're shown another demonstration of the power and wisdom of God, and that is the fact that he points out to them the divine calling of God on their lives. So now that Paul has established the fact that the cross is big, and we are very, very small. His pastoral strategy here to a people who had grown big in their own eyes, or as my grandma used to say, too big for their britches. He takes them back to consider when they were first called through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what God did for them and what they in no way could do for themselves. You don't call yourself into faith. 
he called you. So he, he's going to remind them um, of what they once were and to some degree what they still are. They're just a bunch of nothings in and of themselves. So this passage is going to remind them, it's going to remind us that salvation, friends, beloved, salvation truly is all of grace. It's all grace. Verse 26 comes an imperative, a command. Notice, to consider. Consider your calling, my brethren. Consider, that's the verb to look, okay? That's the verb, that's the word. The idea is to observe closely. Pay close consideration, close attention. I want you to think, Corinthians, and I want you to think deeply. Now, that's very important in our day, beloved, to think deeply. Because generally speaking, we live in a very, very shallow society that does not think deeply about much of anything. Evident by the fact that our culture is informed and conformed by the soundbite. Five or ten second statements or, or opinions that form the thinking and worldview of the mass majority. It's hard to carry on a deep conversation today. All I hear is six o'clock sound bites from the news. Think deeply, he says. Consider your calling. So Paul says to these Corinthians, okay, pump the brakes, guys. Slow down and think. Consider your calling. Okay, not your vocation, but the calling of God on your lives. The sovereign call of God for you. Consider that. Now he's emphasizing something that he's already touched on. Okay, look at the text. Go back and look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by what? Calling. Verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were what? Called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 24. To those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here then in verse 26, he says, I want you to consider your calling brethren. Contemplate this deeply. Something with which you did not have active participation in. Consider that. This is something God did to you. This is something God did to us. He's talking about the beginnings of their Christian life. Their conversion. And it's all due to the call of God that they're believers at all. Consider this calling. 
Friends, he is not talking about the general universal call that sounds to all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That general call goes out right now. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone for your salvation. And if God's grace is present in your life to enable you to do so, you will be saved. This is what's referred to as the effectual call, efficacious grace, or the irresistible call. And perhaps the best definition of the effectual call or irresistible grace is the one provided by Bruce Ware, who said this, and I quote, the doctrine of irresistible grace means that The Holy Spirit is able, when he so chooses, to overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. It is the Spirit's work to overcome all sin-induced resistance and rebellion, opening blind eyes and enlivening hardened hearts so that sinners understand and embrace the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Such is the grace by which we are saved. End of a great quote. Now, the false theme, or what's known as the Arminian scheme, teaches what is referred to as provenient grace. Okay, Arminians teach this. They argue that God grants to all people without exception this kind of grace, which neutralizes the debilitating effects of original sin, enabling all people to believe the gospel if they so choose. Scripture is clear. No one will choose God unless they're called by God. No one. We're talking about something here that God does in in us to overcome our most fundamental problem, and that is being dead in transgressions and sins. What can a dead man do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He is hardened. He is resistant to God. The fact, going back to Romans chapter 3, That there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, and therefore, there is none who seeks for God, not even, not even one. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. In other words, friends, we don't start seeking God until he finds us and enlivens us with his spirit. That's when you seek God, when he sought you out and found you. So consider, he says, your calling. Okay, that is God's summons. Consider God's summons for your life. Consider his internal call, not the external general call, but the efficacious inner call. The Holy Spirit goes to work. As the gospel 
is externally declared. The spirit comes and takes that truth and opens the heart of a dead man or woman and grants them the ability to hear it, to receive it, to embrace it, to love Christ. We love God because he first loved us. To the called, the Spirit of God comes and begins to convince me of my sin. He begins to convince me of my misery. That is of my lostness, my utter lostness. And then he enlivens me to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not mere mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Christ and he lived at one time and was crucified, died, and supposedly raised from the dead and ascended. No, now I trust that truth by way of faith. Because he called me. You chose Christ. You chose Christ because he fixed your choosing first. Consider your calling, brethren. You have been called. If the effectual call of God does not happen within me, I am nothing more than a mere hearer of the word who does not have ears to hear, but by the efficacious call of God the Holy Spirit. That call of God's grace presupposes our depravity, Ephesians 2. Okay, you were dead, you were lost, and then we get to the words, but what? God. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. For by grace, for by grace you have been saved. You have nothing to boast about. Nothing. This call presupposes divine election. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. You're not called unless you're predestined to be called in time. And on time. Look at what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one what? Can. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know, a lot of times people try to put this, you know, these doctrines of um, effectual calling and divine election on the Apostle Paul. Well, look at the words of Christ. Look at verse 65. I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my, my father. So this wonderful sense of being called by God efficaciously is the supernatural work of grace. This is not something you do for yourselves, Corinthians. This is not something you've done for yourself, Pacific Hope Church. This is the divine sovereign work of God. Okay, this is not, as some people say, God cast his vote for you. The devil cast his vote against you. Now it's up to you to decide the casting vote. Friends, divine election took place in eternity past. You weren't old enough to vote. Satan is a convicted felon. He can't vote. The only one voting in this election is almighty God. Consider your calling, brethren. Notice, this is all God's doing. So, verse 26, 
deeply contemplate your calling, Corinthian church, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. Now remember, he's addressing their boastful, arrogant, self-absorbed spiritual pride. Now he's going to make an allusion to Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, and he'll quote it at the end of this paragraph, but let's look at it again. It was our Old Testament reading this morning. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, not a wise, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord notice not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble now not many does not mean not any amen because some mighty and some noble are indeed called but not many okay and and by the way His point is theological and not sociological. This is a theological point, and that is, by and large, when God does a salvific work in the lives of individuals, he he doesn't work typically with the impressive, remarkable, and notable people of the world. God is not impressed by human beings. D.A. Carson, he says this, quote, God is not impressed by the public philosophies, political clout, and extravagant wealth that the world so greatly admires. Okay, so why is it then, Carson goes on to ask, why is it that we constantly parade Christian athletes, media personalities, and pop singers, why should we think that their opinions or their experiences of grace are of any more significant than those of any other believer? Why do so many American evangelicals love to impress people with the importance of the men and women who have become Christians? Answer. Modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infected with the virus of triumphalism. And the resulting illness destroys humility, minimizes grace, and offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom, quote, end quote, of our day. Look, not many of the Corinthians were wise by human standards, says Paul. Not many in that church had formal training in philosophy, logic, and rhetoric, the very things that they were latching onto and boasting about. Common in that day. And no one in this church discovered some secret wisdom 
in order to come to faith in God. They are Christians, not because they're smart, not because they're savvy, not because they're strategic. They are Christians, Paul says, because of the sovereign, efficacious, saving intervention of Almighty God in their lives. Consider that, Corinthians. Boasters. Saying, I am a Paul. I'm of the scholar. I'm of Apollos. The one from Alexandria, Egypt, who speaks like no other. Well, I'm of Cephas. He was the first one to identify Jesus as Christ. Well, I don't need any of y'all. No creed but Christ for me. Consider your calling. Now, there may have been a philosopher or two within the church of Corinth, but they came to faith like everyone else. They were called through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The general call went out, and they received the efficacious call of God the Holy Spirit through the preaching. It's not because they were wiser than others, is Paul's point. Not many wise, notice not many noble, now, the Greek lexicon here says uh, being noble would be of, of high status, to be well-born, high-born, um, or of a proud pedigree. Not many. But God. Verse 27. Not many of you were wise, not many noble, but God. You know, that, those words, but God, that, that's the foundation of our certainty and hope. But. God has chosen, notice, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. That is to say, God chose a foolish message, the cross, in the eyes of man. A foolish medium, preaching of the gospel and the call to repent and believe. And he has chosen what the world truly regards as foolish people, not people of high standing or noble birth. Doesn't that make you feel good? You know, D.A. Carson, who's a brilliant man, writes in his book something like this If God only called the noble and the wise, you know, what about the rest of us? And I'm thinking, man, you can't say that. <laughs> now, I'm a fool. D.A. Carson is no fool. But he sees himself under the blood of Jesus Christ as a fool called by God, according to grace alone. That's what he means. Why does he do it? Why does God do this? So as to notice, shame the wise. That is to shame the self-professed wise people of the world, those of high standing. God chooses the weak. God chooses the foolish things to shame them. Now think about shame. Corinth was an honor culture. The city of Corinth was an honor culture. The worst thing that could happen to you was to be publicly shamed. People would have rather died 
than to be publicly shamed in this day and in this place because that kind of shame is never dismissed. It's never erased. And God, what does he do? He flips the script. He turns things upside down. Worldly thinking is turned on its head. And he will eventually shame those who think they're so wise. Notice, God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. Well, you may ask, well, when's he going to do that? Because I don't see it happening today. When will he do that? At the eschaton. On the last day. On the last day. When he openly, publicly, and powerfully vindicates his people, he will, beloved, at that moment, shame and utterly humiliate those who have shamed and humiliated him and his people. He will shame the wise in their own eyes. The Stephen Hawkings of the world. The Richard Dawkins of the world. They will be shamed openly on this day. You know, Hawking, um, he considered himself an atheist. Guess what? He's an atheist no more. He died last year. And he stood before the one he rejected. Brilliant minds. Where'd they get their mind? From their creator. Almighty God, who will openly shame them on that day. And this, by the way, is a warning for those who merely give lip service to Jesus Christ. They don't possess faith. They only profess faith. And when cultural pressure rises and they become ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of their association with the church and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus gave this warning in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For who's ever ashamed of me In my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Consider your calling, Corinthians. And again, to the Corinthians and all who were in Christ, notice in verses 27 and 28, you were chosen, you were chosen, you were chosen. Three times to reiterate the fact that all of this is according to divine sovereign grace. You didn't earn your way. He called you. Now, this, of course, raises the matter of divine election, doesn't it? Calling, divine election. Friends, you are a Christian today. You are a Christian today because God chose you. He chose you in Christ before what? The foundation of the world. Before there were stars in the heaven, he chose to call you. He chose you then and in time. He set the date that he would effectually call you. Why? Verse 29, so that. Why? So that. Why? So that. No man may boast before God. No man. Anyone who's God's elect, called effectually by God in Jesus Christ to to be delivered from the wrath of God, cannot boast in any sense about being worthy of God's choice. 
It's all grace. Do you believe it's all grace? We live in a boasting society, beloved. People boast about their physical strength, their athletic abilities, world-class athletes. You know the guys who boast? All they talk about is they're so irritating to me. And I love athleticism. I love athletics. I love watching guys who are incredibly gifted. But the quiet guy at a world-class athletic level is a rarity. People boast in the power of their GPA. People like to boast in the power of their wealth. People like to boast in their zip code. I met this person once. I I don't know how many times they told me they were from La Jolla. (laughs) Yeah, we live in La Jolla. Five minutes later, yeah, well, we live in La Jolla and this. Okay, I get it, man. You know what Paul's doing? He's bringing everyone down to the same level. Corinthians. Now, remember, Corinth was a booming town. Many, many, many wealthy, wealthy people in Corinth, and he's bringing them all down to the ground. They had forgotten, says Gordon Fee, that the ground is level at the cross. No boasting. And because God chose, and therefore God called, and because God chose and he called, verse 30, okay, there's no boasting, verse 29. It is all, verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ. Not your doing, His doing. Not shared participation. His doing. But I chose to believe, yes, you did, because he chose you first. He changed your want to. One day you didn't want to follow him. The next day you did want to follow him. He changed your want to. That's the divine, efficacious call of God on your life. Consider that, Corinthians. So Paul says, by his doing. Notice, not your doing. It's because of God you're in Christ Jesus. His doing. You have nothing in and of yourselves, Corinthians. You have nothing in and of yourselves, Pacific Hope Church. It's all by his doing. There's nothing in you and there's certainly nothing in me to attract the admiration of the love of God. Nothing. But God, according to his grace, you're weak, you're foolish, you're low, you're despised, nothings. That's what you are in and of yourselves. But God, he called you. It's all grace. So he wants them to understand. He wants us to understand our salvation is a gift. It's all grace. It's sheer, unmerited favor, and it's free. It cost him Everything. His beloved son. Okay, this this is an elementary principle of the gospel, beloved. If this is something new to you, this is elementary. 
and you've been infected by bad theology until you understand that. It's all grace. So we're not Christians because we're better than other people. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Lord have mercy <laughs> if we think that we are. We are Christians because, as one commentator has put it, we are cosmic charity cases bereft of spiritual resources, soul-starved beggars pleading for crust. End of quote. Notice, because of him, you are in Christ. Verse 30, who became to us wisdom from God. You didn't have this in and of yourself. and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Consider your calling, Corinthians. What is that? To boast in the Lord is to boast in the ancient paths carved out by Almighty God that find their fulfillment in the cross of his beloved son. Those ancient paths. Because they all lead to the cross. Consider your calling. Remember, the cross in Paul's day was not something spoken of in polite company. You didn't put crosses on buildings in Paul's day. You didn't wear crosses around your neck in Paul's day. It was disgusting. It was abhorrent. Paul says, it, the cross, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God for all who are being Saved. He called you through it. He called you to it, Corinthians. He called you, Pacific Hope Church. He called you. Notice who's saying this. The same man, the Apostle Paul, who before his conversion was outraged and absolutely offended that some of his fellow Jews would honor and worship one who was cursed upon a tree? In pursuit of Christians? To imprison them? He wasn't seeking God. I know I say this all the time. When Paul was on the road, he wasn't seeking Jesus. He was seeking to persecute those who loved Jesus. And then Jesus met him there and called him efficaciously. And here he is. Imagine today a respectable, respectable man or woman, multi-talented, self-assured, well-dressed, very educated, high IQ, well put together taken and ushered into the presence of Christ hanging upon the cross, naked, bloodied, beaten beyond recognition, gasping for breath, and being told there is the power of God. There is the wisdom of God for the salvation of your soul. There, trust him, 
believe him, entrust yourself to him, and all that's being accomplished there, and you will be saved from the wrath to come. That is devastating to human pride. Devastating. But God hates human pride. He hates it. Because it destroys human beings made in his image. We were made to boast. Not in ourselves. But in our creator, who's redeemer. So the irony here is that God blocks the path of pride. God blocks the path of destruction for some. And, and he points to the ancient forged out path of himself and his plan for sinners. And that is the place to find rest for your souls. Where the people in Jeremiah's day said, we will not go that way. You can't go that way unless he calls you to the path. That's grace. He blocks the ladder, God does, of self-exaltation with the cross of Jesus Christ. It's blocked. That's the place that he accomplishes salvation for sinners from the inevitable outcome of pride, and that is the holy justice of God. You really think you're that good? He rescues man from his wrath by pouring out his justice upon himself. That is, upon his only son. They are one in essence in nature. He pours out his wrath on his son so that no man may boast in himself to his own destruction. Therefore, the general call goes out to repent and believe in him and you shall be saved with the hope that he is calling you efficaciously through the general call. And if not, my hope is he doesn't turn you over to yourself. Hardened, calcified in your present condition of resistance and unbelief. That's why preachers preach continually the general call of the power and wisdom of God. The cross of Jesus Christ calling sinners to repent and believe with the hope that the Spirit is calling efficaciously. Consider your calling, Corinthians. So the good news is verse 30 to close. God is the source of your life in Christ. Okay, notice this is all his doing. That is God who sent his son. That is the wisdom of God personified Jesus. He's our righteousness. He is your righteousness. Your standing is made right with God through Christ. Notice our sanctification is there also. You've been set apart. You've been drawn near to God, by God, and now you belong to God in Christ. Your sanctification, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. You see that there? We are a purchased possession. 
Church of Corinth, consider your calling. You're a purchased possession. You've been rescued out of bondage, out of slavery. You've been set free in Christ through the cross work of Christ. It's all grace. Consider your calling. Repent and believe if you don't believe today. Repent and believe now and trust in Christ for your soul to be saved. And I assure you, if you do, and God's efficacious call is presently at work in you, you shall be saved on the last day. This is the only unshakable foundation for the church at Corinth. This is the only unshakable foundation for the church known as Pacific Hope Church in San Diego, and that is the ancient paths of God carved out according to his divine sovereign will and purpose that lead to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. For my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing less. This is the banner we fly. This is our boasting, right? Why? Because when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. Let's pray, and then let's sing that together. Father, we do thank you for the glorious cross, the ancient paths carved out by you for your glory and our good, helpless, hopeless in and of ourselves, but God and your grace. Amen.